Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I talk with John Lisbonwood. John is a playwright, an actor, a comedian. Um, he's a colleague or friend of our favorite comic creator, Whitney. And, you know, a lot of times when I am doing these interviews, I'm often looking towards the future. And in this interview, we were definitely looking back a little bit more. Um, John has an amazing story, and I think that you'll get a kick out of it. (laughs) And if you forgot, I'm an executive coach, and I do have a little bit of space for some new clients. So if you want to be one of them, if you have any interest in coaching or would like to know how to become a coach, hit me up. I really want to talk to people about it. Um, One thing that is crazy about the coaching industry is that it's not regulated like the legal industry, but I do hold the um, profession in high regard. And so, you know, if that is something that is of interest to you and you've been thinking like, man, it would be really cool to talk to people about their dreams, I'm your girl. So, John, tell my audience, who are you? Well, well, let's see. Uh, I'm a... My name is John Wood. Uh, I basically, I guess I'm a nice guy, a veteran. Uh, I root for the Cubs. I mean, other than that, I, I have a, I've had a little career. People may be interested in. I uh, after I got out of the army, I was uh, I was uh, known as well. I was somewhere between a, a wit and a wise ass. Anyway, so they uh, my college friend sent me out to Second City, and I accidentally walked in. I didn't know what was going on. And these people were sitting around a table and there was this kind of gruffy old man in the back. And he was, people would come on stage and he, he'd throw things at them. Like it was, I didn't realize it was an, I had walked into an audition and I didn't know what it was. So I was sitting there and watching and uh, the people are getting up and he throws these uh, kind of off this, he throws them all this off the wall stuff. Uh, anyway, so, uh, somewhere during this time, uh, the, uh, a young these two this team came on these two guys. One of them was kind of sh- he was kind of heavy set, and the other guy was a little taller. They had a group, I understand, in uh, out in Western Illinois, and they did a they did a skit. And I want to tell you, I have never seen anything so funny in my life. I had walked into John Belushi's first audition. And as I say this, I tell people this, and then they, no uh, way. what happened was Belushi, yeah. Now Belushi went into the regular company. At the time they had what was called a touring company. We were the understudies. 
In fact, and they, uh, he just walked over. His name was Bernie Stallings. He said, you're in the touring company. Uh, I, I, he called me on stage. I don't know what I did, but he said, you're in a touring company. I was in a touring company with uh, Bill Murray. And, uh, and we used to go, uh, you know, so I told him I didn't have much experience. And so they had me come and watch uh, the show. And then afterwards, they, the audience would throw up suggestions, you know, at the people on stage to do improvs. And I, I've always said this, no matter how funny you've seen Belushi in the movies, I cannot describe to you how funny he was when he was just an unknown improver. So I would watch him night after night, you know, and they, people would try to throw him. They would, you know, they throw suggestions on stage thinking they could get him. They never got him. I remember he was a, they had him as a deep sea diver and, and he was like, no, you have to be French. And I said, Chevrolet. And then, you know, he just, he couldn't be topped. So that was my first experience. Uh, <laughs> What happened though is I'd never been involved. Yeah, I never been involved in theater. I, you know, I went to, uh, I, I think I did a show in high school or something. And I, I went to, well, it's not called Illinois Tech. I went to Illinois Institute of Technology. They didn't even have a liberal arts department. You had to get a bachelor of science. So I had no exposure in my entire life. And then I had gone into the army. It was '69, and. Uh, uh, I, I had enlisted. It was right the height of the Vietnam War, but I, my father had been in the military. I had this kind of, I don't know, idea I wanted to be in it. And uh, uh, I was in, like I said, I had enlisted, but uh, I had a, I had a, I had a seizure disorder that flared up in the service. So I got a medical discharge. So I was coming home. And like I said, that's when I went to Second City. And uh, I thought, well, this acting, strangely enough, my mother, had always encouraged me, you know, you hear these stories about parents are mortified when their children go into acting. It was just the opposite. Uh, her side of the family had been very artistic. Uh, her, uh, my grandfather had been the leading uh, trumpeter for a big band. It was called Gene Krupa's band. And uh, my grandmother had, she was an opera singer. She had sung in, uh, she, she was, I think she was the first person to sing at the Mormon tabernacle choir that was not a Mormon. So anyway, she had all these stories and she was always, she said, you should be in dramatics. And I just, I ignored it. I, you know, we were, you know, was, we were at a large family we were seven of us. And we, like times were getting a little tough. We lived on the north side of Chicago and I worked in a supermarket. I never thought about it. It never occurred to me that somehow this would happen. Uh, but when I got it, I said, well, maybe I could, you know, maybe this is a, Maybe this is a sign. So I started to go out on auditions. Uh, and she, it was when I started, it was so much easier than it is today. I see these people struggling, you know, to be apprentice and all that. You just walked into the equity office. You signed up after the equity people went, you went. And uh, I, I went on audition. I got an audition. I went to an audition. I got into a children's show and uh, I got an equity card. So now I have my equity card and I'm understudying Second City. And uh, I I get, for a while, I, I had more breaks than anybody I've ever seen in my life. Uh, if I never get another break the rest of my life, I'm still ahead of the game. So uh, I started to audition here and around. And like I said, I got the children's show. And then I got into, it was a uh, Cooper's Nest was then playing at the 11th Street Theater in Chicago. So I got into that. 
And then I went to an open audition. And rather than do that, you know, they come in with the monologues, actors. And I thought it was kind of boring. So I wrote my own stuff. And I went in and I did it. And there was a rather well-known director at the time. His name Davey Marlon Jones. Well, he just took a liking to me, you know. So he put me, I had a season at, uh, it was called Loretto Hilton. Now it's called the St. Louis Rep, but then it was called Loretto Hilton. And it's, uh, for St. Louis, it's a pretty prestigious theater, I guess. It's like being at the Goodman here in Chicago. Mm, yeah. And I did uh, these four shows. And uh, one of the shows was uh, Hot El Baltimore. And uh, what happened was uh, I was in it and uh, there was a redheaded actress I got to be friends with. She's from New York. And her husband was, uh, his name, uh, Klein. Klein. Richard Klein, Richard Klein. With a C, not the K. And he, I don't know if you remember, he used to be on Three's Company. Mm -hmm. He was one of the later came on. And he came and, you know, he was really plugged into the theater scene. And uh, there was a big show in New York. It was called When You Coming Back, Red Rider. And it was a hit. And it won, I think it won more Obies than any other show. And uh, the person playing the lead was Brad Dourif. And Brad had a, he got in Cuckoo's Nest. You know, he was Billy Bibb in Cuckoo's Nest. So they had a, all of a sudden in the middle of the show, they didn't have an actor. And they kept auditioning all these actors in New York and they, they didn't like him. So Klein said, well, I know who you should pick. And he, he called me and said, come to New York. And, um, and he took me in to read the producer and they put me in the show. So I went to New York in the show. And then all of a sudden, uh, what happened? Cuckoo's Nest uh, was restaged in California. The original the production I was in Chicago, all the people involved. And uh, they had trouble with the show. It was it was it was it was Cooper's Nest <laughs> when I, and so they uh, what happened was they fired two actors and uh, they called me. I had played that part in Chicago. They said, "Can you get on the next plane out here? You're going on." So I went to I went to uh, so I flew out to L.A. and uh, like I said, uh, you're gonna have to excuse me. For a minute. I guess I'm gonna turn this off. There you go. Anyway, so anyway, I went to I went I go to uh, I go to I go to California, and first I run into a problem. Uh, there was an actor in it, John Savage. I don't know if you remember John. He was in. Uh, do you remember Deer Hunter, the movie Deer Hunter? Anyway, was he was the lead in Onion Field. He was kind of like a star. I, I walked on stage, and the producers went crazy. They said I was too young. They said, No, no, you can't be this young. You you're conflicting with. Uh, John Savage, Billy. So they gave me a partisan understudy, and I was roughly I hung I hung around against the wall, and that's and I was the you know I was the understudy. But once again, I got a somebody introduced me to an agent, and he was an old time agent. He was kind of semi retired, uh, and I he you know he talked about the old days in in Hollywood, and he just said I think you could do all right with film. So he sent me out on a job, and I got the job. It was, Remember, it was a TV series called SWAT. <laughs> and, uh, I had never been a, you know, it was my first job. So uh, they called me. I got to the studio early in the morning and they gave me, I had a, a, a small part. What I thought was a small part, it was a page. Uh, but I was a, I was a principal, but I didn't know it. So I went to the studio and, uh, and there, the, all these people are running around. They're getting ready to shoot for the day. And I find, I said, I'm here. Who are you? Well, I have this small part. You have a small part? Get on this bus. So I went on the bus and we drive out there. I was on the extras bus. 
you know, so I get out, I get out to Santa Monica and they're shooting a scene. I see these, the director and all these people are real. They're running around confused. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, and I said, what's happening? He said, well, the actor that's supposed to be doing that part, they think they left them at the studio. I said, wait a minute. I'm the actor supposed to be doing that part. So that was my first introduction. Oh my God. I know. I know this. What I recall this is like, I, it's like a, all this really happened. Uh, what happened was it? Okay. Then uh, you remember the series Kojak? I don't know if people, it was a very big series. And they got me an audition for Kojak. And I auditioned. I got on the show. And uh, it was a, it was an episode that had, it had Neville Brand, all famous movie star. And uh, the point was I, I stole the, I would, Kojak's nephew. I was hanging around with him and uh, I sold the camera, Kojak's camera. And I was, a, I was a young addict. So I got him hooked on. So we had all kinds of trouble. And uh, I had this scene where I was supposed to OD. <laughs> I knew coming from the background I was, I had seen a lot of this. Not, you know, I came from an al- alcoholic family. So I, said, I can do this. So I kind of hammed it up and did this scene on, you know, where I was very intense and I OD'd. And the director came over. He says, very intense, but I don't think they're going to put it on primetime TV. I think it's too much. Well, the show was, it aired between Christmas and New Year's. All right. The highest ranked dramatic show of the year. They left the scene in. The next day, President Reagan called and said, I want copies of that film sent to every school in America. I mean, you know, I, I just backed into something. And from then on, I went to have a, uh, a career in Hollywood. I did a lot of shows and movies and that kind of stuff. And uh, that uh, I don't know how much uh, how much we want to go on with this. So you can ask me any kind of question you'd like. Any, you know. I mean, this is wild. Just so that I have, I, just so I think I'm tracking. You walked into Second City, got put on the touring company. Walked into the Actors' Equity office in Chicago, got an Actors' Equity card, got put on commercials, got sent to New York, and then got sent to L.A., and then was on the highest-rated show in the 80s. That's one of the highest-rated episodes and the highest-rated shows of the years. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's that's pretty much the timeline. And uh, I continued to do a lot of shows. That is – that's amazing. Yeah, it was a – but on a personal note, I, I don't mind talking about this. I had, I'd come from a very alcoholic family, and I had picked I in the art. I didn't drink when I went to school or anything like that because I went to a super straight school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to IIT. There were nothing but engineers, you know, physicists. They walked around with in the old days. They before they had uh, before they had phones. They had slide rules, and they had little things in their pocket with all their mechanical pencils. Yeah, and I was in a, I was in a. I was a special, uh, I was, actually it was political science. I was in uh, urban, urban planning. So I, I never was exposed to it, but, uh, when I, boy, I picked it up really quick when I got into being an actor and, uh, I kind of went pretty fast. So, uh, uh, but I, I always was able to walk in and get a job. You know, I did all kinds of shows. I Bronk and Berettas and Hawaii Five O's and, and I actually, I kind of got close to a couple of things. 
uh, that were kind of big. And people were, as I look back on it, what was really sad about the whole thing was people were on my side. Everybody was on my side. They were rooting for me. But, you know, I, I was going through this, you know, mm-hmm. what they call the pitiful incomprehensible demoralization of alcohol. So I started to, like, go down pretty fast. And uh, and when I went, I, my mother was a small woman. And she had a, you know, she had seven children. Poor. I love that woman, but she was just got worn down. She kind of got very sick at the end. But I uh, I had the same physical traits that she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is rather a little bit, well, uh, might as well. Uh, like I said, she's a small woman. My father was a, he was a, he was a very interesting man. He was, I had a mechanical IQ of old genius. He was a war hero. But he was one of these men you walk into in life. He can't play it straight. He just couldn't. He couldn't play it straight. He was always had an angle. That he was up to something. And I think we went to we went to eight. I, I went to eight different grade schools. Mm. You know, we were moving in the middle of the night. In addition to that, he was also a gambler, and it was a, it was kind of an interesting life to tell you the truth. But anyway, she my mother kind of got worn down, and she got really sick at the end, and she kind of went into a room and. Uh, uh, laid in bed and my poor sister had to take care of her and literally she began to drink around the clock and she she had the cirrhosis developed so severely that the blood backed up and her heart exploded she had a massive heart attack and I mm. that was with me in my mind and like I said I had the same body so let's I'll just fast forward I'm doing all these shows in Hollywood but I'm drinking heavily and I like I said I went fast I started to have the blackouts I, I drive, I was driving the wrong way on the Ventura freeway, which is the busiest freeway in the, in the country, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, my landlord would say, you come down the street 60 miles an hour and turn right in the driveway. And I'd wake, he said, I, I didn't even remember I'd wake up on the floor. So, uh, and actually what's interesting at, at the end, I had, I had, I was, I didn't even have an apartment. I was living in a garage in the back of a car. And they found me. The uh, studios found me. It turns out that they had. I would, there was a series. Yeah, David Cassidy was in. It was kind of a big time. And I would. I had done a show, but the the uh, the producer like they were like they they were really on my side. So they pulled me. They they wrote me out of this other show, cut me out, and they wrote a show for me. They wrote me as a guest star. And here I am. I'm living in a garage. I'm, I weigh about 110 pounds. I'm shaking badly. These people think I'm acting. I, I was literally going through the DTs and I did the show and uh, I don't know how I managed to get through it. But I, I and then it, there was something called looping in Hollywood. You have to show up and you have to put your voice into you, you see your you, you see yourself on the on the screen and you put your voice in. It's done all the time. And uh, I didn't show up. I was still, I was so physically sick. I had just given up. I was gonna, I was gonna go ahead, like drink myself to death. I mean, I saw my mother do it, so I thought, well, I'm gonna do it. And uh, they came and got me. They crashed into the apartment, took me to St. John's, and that that became, I guess that be, that became the second act of my life. So, and I went on to, uh, I worked a little, but I got very interested in acting. I had my own comedy group. I did stand up in California. I loved it. And uh, my cousin, my second cousin was one of the biggest producers in history of Hollywood. He created Laugh-In. I don't know if you remember that show. It was very famous in the 60s. 
And, uh, oh. I, you know, I started to work with him and so we did, we did like the all-star parties. We did the all-star, we did the all-star party for Dutch Reagan, which was for president Reagan. And, uh, first time a president had appeared in prime time in a, in a, in a variety show, you know, we, you know, they, all the stars came on and we did one for Sinatra. We did one for Burt Reynolds. We did one for uh, Carol Burnett, one for Lucille Ball. And that, you know, I loved working with him as a producer. So, uh, uh, a series of things happened. And, uh, all of a sudden I, I just got this, I wanted to write, I thought I could, in addition to comedy, I thought I could write a play. So I, I was in this theater group. I wrote a play and, uh, <laughs> I spent like this play haunted me. I spent two years or three years on it, but I, they put it up and it won an award. It won a drama log award. So, uh, that was, so I left comedy and went into this serious dramatic writing. Anyway, after a while, I really, you know, I, I got tired of California. I mean, I, I'd done about 30, 40, uh, 30 shows and, and uh, I wasn't going, I wasn't going to make it big. They were betting on me to make it big. <laughs> I always say, you know, they thought I was going to be a star, but boy, did I ever show them. So, and so I went back to, I ended up in New York as a playwright and I wrote a series of plays and I, uh, one was produced in the gay and lesbian festival that won an award at first place. And another one that uh, they made a small movie out of it. It's, actually it's still on YouTube and it won some awards. And, uh, but I, uh, I came back to Chicago. I was really, uh, I wasn't really that, I was not really a New Yorker. And uh, I came back and uh, I got involved with, uh, 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 there was like these two, I met two men, they were jingle writers. And that sounds like a pejorative. No, jingle writing is very difficult. You really have to be a good musician. And, uh, they did a, a jingle. I know people don't remember it. it. Was in Michael Jordan was the biggest star in Chicago at the time, and he had he had he was the Gatorade person, and they did this show. This I was there. They did this jingle in six minutes called "I Like Mike." The thing made millions. It was all over TV, and they had a what was it? They had a they one of them from New York. His name was Ira. He had a he wanted to do a musical, and he had a it was called the Whole Earth Opera. And they had this music, they had done some music and I liked the music. It was really nice. And they handed me the story and I read the first like two paragraphs. I said, I couldn't believe that adults wrote this. I said, okay, yeah. So I went home and I said, look, forget this story, throw it up. And I rewrote an entirely different story and I wrapped the story around pre-existing songs. So it looked like it was half a musical, half a setup for the songs. All right. But, uh, it, it was called Just One World. That was a big song in the world. So they produced it at the, uh, they, they did a little, a little production here in Chicago. And uh, here was the premise. It was, it, was an, it was a family environmental musical. I created these mythical animals and they were in the rain. They were trying to save the rainforest from this, uh, these things called the taking creatures. And I just put the songs in, you know, and I changed a lot of the lyrics on the songs. So we had a production. Next thing you know, people are standing up. And uh, uh, what was it? One of the, was Herb Cups in it? One of the big He came and said, you've done Cats. Well, he, he called it Cats with a Heart and Soul. And uh, But these other two people that I was working with, one was a singer and one was a jingle writer. They had, they, I'll tell you, when you first start, it's not failure that usually does you in. 
its success. All of a sudden, it was optioned for Broadway by Daryl Roth, and she did a, what was it, what did she do? Oh, she did a August Osage County. She was big. She, uh, she, uh, she optioned it. But I, I knew from the beginning that it, it, it couldn't work because it was, uh, it wasn't, the music and the show didn't quite go together. And they had insisted that all the music stay in. So they kept asking me to develop the story and I kept up, I, you know, I'm doing the best I can. So I made kind of a, a deal with them. I knew they would fail. So I said, okay, you take the show to New York with your music and you can have what I have with the script. But if you don't get it produced in a year, I want the story back. <laughs> well, they were in New York for about two weeks and they were, it was re- revealed exactly you know, what the show was and what it was and what they would have to do. So I got the story back and uh, I then rewrote, I sat down with another musician and uh, we rewrote the score. And now it was called Children of the Earth. And uh, I was working with a very talented man. We, we wrote some, we together, the deal was this. I, I don't really know that much about music, but uh, Cats, Cats is the poems of T.S. Eliot at the music. I can write poetry. So I would write up like a poetry, a piece of poetry. And I would bring it into him and I would say, okay, here's how I hear the sound that I would like, I would tap out a, a melody or something like that. And he was so... The minute I, I was about a minute into it, he would he hit the piano and we had a song. We wrote the whole score in about, uh, I think, in two days. And uh, fortunately, this time, uh, well, I'm actually talking to you from Indiana. Uh, you know, uh, this magic person entered my life. She's been my partner in health for about going on over 12 years. And she was teaching at Purdue on Northwestern, and she was head of the drama department. And uh, through a series of incidents, I, I met her. And I showed her the musical and they produced it and it was kind of a hit. Uh, so we, I had that show and uh, boy, I don't know, I get kind of lost. So I, I have just one. Okay. And then we called it Children of the Earth. So I still had it. We produced it and every now and then we do productions of it, uh, Children of the Earth. And uh, when I was in New York, I, I, I was, I directed a lot of shows and I came across this, kind of interesting. He was African-American. Uh, he belonged to uh, the impact group and he was, he, I didn't realize this time he was a brilliant musician. And uh, one day he came to me and he had this story and he told it to me, he had it written down. Do you remember about, it was about last summer, there was a big to do over this thing called the Tulsa riot, the Tulsa race riot. Remember that last year there was a Tulsa Centennial. It was they did some specials on TV about it. Yep, it was a big thing. Uh, it's yeah, a very it was... tragic story. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the story was you know, there was this black Renaissance area, a most advanced probably black community maybe in history, and uh, they invaded it and burned it to the ground in one day, and it was remarkable the people they had there, and they they actually took people out, they killed them in the streets and sent them off. And he told me this story. And I said, I never heard of this. So I sat down with him and I wrote, I wanted to write a show in verse. I had, oh, there was a little, okay, a little interlude in the whole Chicago story. I, w- I got a job at the Court Theater. I don't know if you remember, there's a famous theater in Chicago called the Court Theater. And uh, I had done a play by Moliere and it was in verse. Like, I'm going to write a play in verse. So I wrote it in verse 
and uh, he wrote some music for it. I mean, there's some of the best songs I have ever heard on stage. And we put it together. And again, we produced it at, at uh, Purdue Calumet. And again, it was people were very excited about it. The big problem was I did it about six, seven years ago. Nobody had heard about Greenwood. It's also right. No, it, nobody knew about it. So I couldn't, you know, it was difficult to get it produced. And then I, this year was a hundred centennial. So I went to Tulsa and I did some scenes out of it. And my idea was to go, I was going to go to New York with Kevin, uh, Kevin Thomas is name. Uh, he got nominated for an Academy Award. He wrote the song, Raise It Up for August Rush. He co-wrote that and he performed it at the Oscars. I mean, this is a talent. Oh, wow. So uh, we're going to go to New York. And we were going to, you know, we were going to see, if we see, if we thought we had another Hamilton on our hands. I think we still have, but then COVID hit, you know, and everything shut down. So I had the, I had the musical, you know, and I took it to Tulsa and did some scenes and I still want to see if, I think it's a really good show. I think it has possibilities. And in the meantime, as I studied this whole process about this, this Greenwood section in Tulsa. Uh, it happened in 1921, but I don't, people don't realize in America, right after Reconstruction, right after around the 1900s, uh, there were these whole series, they call them race riots, but they weren't race riots. They took, uh, when blacks got successful, they would come in and invade the town and lynch them all. They did it in the South and they did it in Wilmington. They did it in Atlanta. They did it in Lane. It was called the Red Summer of 1919. The Ku Klux Klan marched in Washington, 20,000 of them. They were supported by Woodrow Wilson. So these, they wiped out all this black progress. And one of the reasons that this, the racists struggled so much is because every time they would succeed, they would destroy it. And when I say destroy it, they like Wilmington, they went in, they started lynching people. They burned down their town. And they, they actually, uh, they were the first blacks to succeed politically. They were part of the, the government of... Uh, of North Carolina. So anyway, I got, I, I really studied it. And then I, I just finished a book called There Stood Greenwood, which I'm going over of the history of these, uh, these, these enclaves, these very progressive enclaves and how they were periodic, how they were just ravaged and how it set back black progress. So uh, I still have that play and I have the, I'm finishing up. And now it's a book. It's called, so I have the book, the play, the two plays, and I was going to go again to uh, New York and see if I could promote them. But again, we have the COVID thing. So I'm kind of everything's on hold, which brings me to this microphone in front of you right now. Okay. And as like Robert Blake used to say, that's the name of that. You've done, you've done so much. And it sounds like you have some really great things just waiting for the opportunity to produce them. Uh -huh. Um. What is so important to you about being a writer? Uh, it's first of all, it's a you know it's an ability I have. You know, I my mother, I think I got it from my mother. She was known mm -hmm. for writing letters and things like that. So I have this. I always wanted to write something that that contributed, that made a point, that was substantial. You know, and that was kind of my that was my uh, that was behind the motive to write. You know the environmental music and the environment to write the, the, uh, yeah, 
the right to, you know, I, it's not, well, originally it was called Dreamland Burning, but there was a, I, we came up with the title 10 years ago and somebody else came up with the title. So now it's called Bad Wind Blowing, which is the, the first, uh, one of the songs uh, Tevin wrote for the show. Mm. And I thought, hey, maybe I have the ability to say something that is important. It has some weight and might influence people. So that's kind of been my driving motive. So how, how just out of curiosity, how long have you been sober? It's got to be like 20 years more. Oh, my God. I've been so, I celebrated 35 years. So I was like, no. Congratulations. Yeah. And if it, I, it, I found, uh, you know, I found, I found the program. And if I hadn't found that, I'd been dead because I was, I was hemorrhaging from my nose. And the doctor said it was just a matter of time before you, you know, you swallowed, uh, you know, you swallowed your own blood and died. So my first sponsor used to say, you tried to kill yourself, Aww. got sentenced you to life. So I'm doing my time. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of an amazing way to look at it, right? Like to take advantage of the opportunity that has been afforded to you, whether or not you intended to. Yeah. You know, but I look back now and uh, there's a, I've always, there's a, you know, the word grace, we throw the word around. It's actually from a Greek word. It's, for, it's called kratakma. It means unmerited favor. God extended me unmerited favor. Mm. He didn't extend it to my parents, but, but he extended it to me. So I feel like a responsibility. I, I want to give something back if I possibly can. Yeah. Like between now and next year, do you have a goal for giving anything back or is it all like COVID dependent or um, who knows what dependent? Yeah, that, uh, that concerns my, that's my artistic, but, I, mm -hmm. I, I adopted this, the program, which is the whole basis of, people think it's about, yes, it's about not drinking, but if you, the literature, if you read it in the real thing, it's, uh, I'm going to quote this out of the book, out of the main AA book, you know, okay. uh, we'd are outfit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and our fellows. So it's a service program. So my first sponsor is brilliant man. He said, you know, I was. I was, I went, I was in this acting class once and I, when I was new, I first, I didn't have any experience. So I went to this acting class and I did a monologue in, in the acting class and there was this pause and this acting teacher looks at me and says, you know what you are? You're complicated. Boy, did I get off on that? So, so I was complicated. Uh, but the point I want to make is he simplified life for me. He, he, he put my life in one sentence, and I'll say it to anybody, anytime, anywhere. He said, I'm going to tell you who you are and what you're going to do. You're an alcoholic and you give it away. That's who you are. That's what you do. Done, finished, period. So that's been my mantra. I have that and I have one other mantra. I've, I kind of adopted to the period. What's the other mantra? I found it in the writings of Nietzsche, so I can't get, I, I can't take credit for it, okay? Have a good thought, say a good word, do a good act. Have a good thought, say a good word, do a good act. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Because happiness is not an emotional state of mind. It's an activity. Yeah. You know, um, Gandhi's definition of integrity is where your uh, thoughts, your intentions, your speaking and your actions align. 
So what I hear is that like both Nietzsche and Gandhi were onto something. Be al- be in alignment and act upon it. If you study all the great religious ideas, philosophical ideas, you find they're all kind of tracking in the same direction. You find a similarity once through them. So that's, you know, you just, you know, you just revealed one of those. Yeah, well, and I guess it depends on like why you think, why you, not just you, but you, the royal we who are in this conversation together, think that we're here on earth. You know, some people believe that we're here on earth to make money and be productive. But I hear from you that part of your reason for being here on earth is to be of service and to really serve other people. Yes, I do the best I can. However, I want to go on record. If I get money and fame, I'm not going to turn my back on it. So if it comes, it comes. It's not. Look, everyone, (laughs) I'm a big fan of money, too. Some people are carrying on. I'm too spiritual for money. If they're listening to this program and you're too spiritual for money, send it to me. I know what to do with it. You turn it over to God. Turn it over to God. Well, listen, I got a little, I got a bulletin for people. You turn your credit card over to God. He'll turn it over to a credit agency if you don't pay it. So, you know, we live in the real world. So money is, it's a vehicle. It's something, it's an expedient. Yep. You know, you have to, you, you have to take it into consideration. You know, it can't be the driving force, but yep. it ha- you know, because like you know, it's, it's not money is not the root of it. All evil. It's the love of money. So you just, it's, I don't love it. It's just ne- a necessity. And I have. You know. Well, and it's money's helpful. Money is how like things happen. And yeah. if you really want to make things happen, sometimes you have to find a, the resources to do it. And, in our society, that doesn't mean going to mine for rocks. Yeah, you're right. You know, there's a, I think Moses says it. I think the old comedian Red Fox said it. He said, you know, he said, sex and money. If you got them, you never think about them. If you don't have them, you think about them all the time. So true. <laughs> so tell me about your partner. You've been with, you've been with her for 12 years. Well, she's downstairs right now. Yeah, she's a, She's a wonderful woman. She's a gift and she's added so much to my life. I'm very grateful that I've met her. And we, you know, work, you know. Uh, well, I was just going to ask, like, you kind of mentioned how you met, but like, what got you into a relationship with her? How did you, how did you convince her to well, stick around? Well, you know, she's also in the program, which, you know, helped a lot. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just like, I was getting on in age and said, you know, this woman is, you know, like I said, she's out, she's adding a lot to my life and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make the commitment. You know, I just made the commitment. I, I always wanted in back of my mind, if I could really love some, you know, it's always been a question, but you know what I can do? I can be loving one day at a time. And I've laid that into 12 years. Well, you know, love is both a feeling and an act. You can, you know, like yeah. the feelings come and go. So yeah, maybe you don't love somebody every day, but you choose to, and you choose to act upon the love. Um, what is some terrible advice that you've been given that you didn't follow? Let me think for a second. I've been, you know, because of the circle of friends I around, the feedback I get is pretty is pretty good. 
sort of mind. Giving bad advice. Uh, oh, oh, I okay. I, I I'll give you one. This I was I had a friend of mine reacting. Most actors make their money in commercials. They don't make them in theater. All right. And this guy was always, uh, mm-hmm. he was always pushing me to get into commercials. But I didn't feel comfortable. I, I didn't. I, I don't know for some reason. I love to act on stage and film, but commercials like they weren't kind of my bag. And uh, so he, I went to a. He finally got me to a commercial audition, and I don't know what it was. And I remember I, I auditioned for this woman, and she gave me this look. Like, and I had a few, I had a few credits now. She looked across to me and she said, you have the worst commercial instincts I have ever seen in an actor. So I got up and I walked out of the office and I missed that whole, <laughs> I, I, I missed that whole aspect. I, I think I could have done it. <laughs> so that was the most discouraging thing I think I ever heard. That is pretty discouraging. It's kind of like someone taking a big old poop right in the middle of the dinner table. <laughs> Yeah, but you know the point is she was right. I I just you know, I could have learned them if I had, you know if, yeah maybe I you know I might have been a little conceited, a little pretentious. It, it didn't seem artistic to me. You know I didn't want to sell. You know, right now if they they give me a network commercial, what have yeah. you got? I'll sell whatever you got. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're on your way to a Saran Wrap commercial. <laughs> yeah, I start to see myself now. I'll wrap myself in. I don't care if it's a wrap. wrap. <laughs> so how can we support your art? Like I hear that you're not necessarily doing any plays right now, but where can we find you and how can we support you? Well, uh, okay. I have a website. Okay. It's my, when I first started as an actor, oh, in between, the, I got a job in Summerstock. <laughs> Are you ready for that? My first show, I was doing Girl in My Soup with Van Johnson. Remember the old redheaded actor from the 30s, very famous actor. Anyway, uh, uh, my name was John Wood. Sorry, but I hated my middle name. I never told anybody. It's Lisbon, L-I-S-B-O-N. And there's supposed to be an accent mark over the O. It was supposedly a lawyer that my father met or something. For some reason, I ended up with a name, John Lisbon Wood. And I, I went, to, so I'm in Summerstock. I never told anybody. And uh, they're printing the programs. And I said, my name's John Wood. And they, they they suddenly got this hysterical call. You can't use John Wood because there's another actor named John Wood. Uh, he was a famous British actor. And the equity says you have to change it immediately. And uh, and you have to make it distinctive so you're not him. So I said, do you have a middle name? And I just blurted it out, John was going to. Well, that went into the program that night. So I've been stuck with the name ever since. So it's a. Uh, my website is John, Lisbon, L-I-S-B-O-N, Wood, W-O-O-D dot com. And uh, okay. my work, I've, done a, I've written a, a number of things in the field. So anybody that, and if they see him, if they see one of my shows, they're welcome to buy a ticket. So that's the best way yeah, I think to support myself. I mean, that's part of, that's part of the goal is to get you more people in the audience. Um, the last question I like to ask people is, what does success mean to you? Uh, well, as long as I have, you know, as long as I know, you know, you know, if I'm laying there and, you know, it's the end and, you know, I see the light and all that, I just want to be able to say, maybe I left this world a little better than I found it. That's all I need. I, the success in that, you give me success, you give me awards, you give me reviews, you got them, but it's not a deal breaker. Yeah. 
I love that. That's beautiful. It's just a, an intention to be a good human being. Yeah. John, thank you so much for doing this show. It was a pleasure to hear your story. I, I really enjoyed that. I hope I was able to something. I something. Oh, no, you were so great. Okay. I'll, I'll, I have to thank uh, Whitney. Whitney, for uh, she's the one that uh, was the interlocker later between you and I. And she's a very special person. I love her very much. Whitney is an amazing human being, and I'm yes. so glad that they're around. It's just. And uh, can I say some? Good luck with you. Okay, I, I want to wish you good luck. I think what you're doing is very important. Oh, thank you. You're very, you're a very, uh, you're a very exceptional person. I can just see that. So I want to wish you the best. And I'm glad I had some time to connect. Me too. I mean, thank you. I'm glad we connected. And also thank you for that beautiful, beautiful compliment and acknowledgement. This is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.